have these systems in place to, um, uh, for the pastors to preach at the various other churches here. And um, I think that the uh, churches of Mine Road and Peckway and Weavertown uh, seems like there's fewer and fewer things for the, uh, um, the marrieds the married folks to uh, get together. Um, they have youth things and, like I said, pastor things. Uh, maybe there ought to be some sort of system to uh, shift some things around with uh, the married uh, folks uh, from the churches. Well, I embrace the opportunity to be here today and to uh, preach uh, on the subject of foot washing. Um, this was the sermon that was assigned to me by the uh, planners. And uh, so, like I said, I have um, several things that I want to um, highlight uh, as goals for myself. I think it's important for us to, number one, have a better understanding of this tradition and this practice and the importance of it. And I think um, even further, I think it's important for us to, to not only practice the foot washing at communion or wherever we practice that, but we would live like that. And I think that's the goal of this teaching here in John chapter 13, that we would live like the visual. The visual would just be a reminder for us to, to live our lives like that. And that, I think, is the highest goal of, as I teach and preach here this morning. So the ordinance of foot washing. And um, we have been taught probably that uh, an ordinance we've heard is something that we do, something that we actually involve ourselves in, and it teaches us a spiritual principle. It's kind of like a spiritual discipline in the sense that it's something that we actually do that teaches us something. So for years and years, Throughout the history of the church, basically, there's been at least two or three ordinances. Sometimes those vary depending on the belief of that, uh, of the church age or whatever. Daniel Kaufman came along in the 1950s, I think, and said there's seven. Uh, I don't mind that. Um, but for me personally, I think maybe there's more. I'm not sure on that. But thanks, Daniel Kaufman. I think that he especially lifted up the idea of the aspect of the practice teaching us how to live. And I think that's what the Bible intends. Another thing that I want to address here at the beginning of the sermon is that sometimes we hear during communion and foot washing time, and we talk, or we hear comments such as the first communion, and they point to Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. And uh, I, I think there's probably something to be said about that. I think that it was a uh, kind of the first communion. But much more realistically, it was actually Passover. And what happened in the upper room was completely different, very unlike our communion and foot, wa- foot washing service at Weavertown, and I suppose probably sort of a lot different than what happens uh, when you have communion here at Mine Road. So the Passover was a Jewish feast, And it would always happen on a certain time of every year. And it was a whole week. It consumed the activities of an entire week. So in Jesus' time, as close as we can tell, there was Palm Sunday. That was the first day 
of the Passover celebration. It was on the 10th day of the month, Nisan. And um, the Hebrew calendar is adjusted to align with the solar and the lunar system, or the moon. And so uh, the, the 15th day of month, Nisan, always coincides with either Sunday, Tuesday, or Thursday, or Saturday, four, four days, uh, that it can, uh, depending on the, the solar s- cycle. And um, for instance, in 2023, uh, the 15th day of the month, Nisan, uh, coincided with Tuesday, April 6th. And so uh, the way the Jews celebrate and look at um, a day, their day starts at sundown. So when the sun goes down this evening, or let's say last evening, Sunday started at sundown. Ours, according to our calendar, starts at midnight. But um, so on April the 5th of 2023, the Passover started on Monday evening at sundown. April, uh, I'm sorry, it was Wednesday, April 5th, and April the 6th was the 15th day of the month, Nisan. And that would, that would kick off Passover. But four days before that, there would be a time of what we know as Palm Sunday. And uh, in our calendar, it always lands on Sunday. But uh, in Jesus' time, as close as we can tell, the Passover would have started on a Sunday, the day after Shabbat or Saturday. And so they would have been four days into this by the time they got to the upper room. Palm Sunday was a time where the Jewish families would choose their lamb and they would keep their lamb under observation for four days until the Sabbath, until the Thursday uh, of that week when the Passover was celebrated. So as close as, um, as I I can calculate. I know that it's, uh, I, I know there's debate about this. I think Jesus was crucified on a Thursday. I don't think he was crucified on a Friday like we celebrate. You can't get three days and three nights uh, in the grave like he said and predicted. Uh, if he was crucified on a Friday, you would have only two nights and maybe three days, depending how you count. I think Jesus died on a Thursday in keeping with the Passover. And so uh, the Passover would have been celebrated, as close as I can tell, on a Thursday. And immediately following that day would have been the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was another Jewish feast. And that is uh, all symbolic of, I think, what was going on and what Jesus was fulfilling on that precise timeline. And on Sunday morning, the day after the weekly Sabbath or Shabbat, Sunday morning would have been um, the first day of the Feast of First Fruits for the Jews. And I think you're probably following that. Uh, Jesus fulfilled all of those on the exact time and in the exact way. So the Passover service the, in the upper room, the, the Passover celebration itself, the Passover meal itself, as we sort of in our minds think of as the First Communion, although I don't think it really uh, was like our communions, it was a stretched out, Ceremony. It started uh, before sundown and within and lasted for several hours way into the night. And Passover to this day, maybe some of you have uh, had the opportunity to celebrate a Jewish Passover. I think they celebrate it very much like 
um, uh, had been cel celebrated for centuries, for thousands of years probably. But within that ceremony, there are multiple rounds of wine. There's at least four cups that are celebrated as part of the Passover meal. So when the Jews would gather in their homes for the celebration of the Passover, there would be the first cup, and it was called the cup of sanctification. And that was usually followed by hand washing or feet washing by one of the services, by one of the servants. And then there was usually appetizers with some sort of vegetable, and they were dipped in salt water and herbs. And as always, in uh, a Jewish Passover, there's no hurry, and like I said, things are stretched out over a period of hours. And there's singing and recitals of uh, reciting scriptures and psalms, which is the Jewish hymn book. And another major part of the Passover meal is the reciting of the, their story, the Jewish story, their deliverance from the land of Egypt originally, and more, more recently, their, their stories of deliverance from the countries that persecuted them and so on. And so following the appetizer, there would be another round of grape juice, and it was called the cup of judgment, sometimes called the cup of plagues or the cup of deliverance. And then there would be more singing and more reciting of scriptures. And then it would be the Passover feast itself, which would be the, the lamb, the, the roasted lamb. There was always the unleavened bread or the matzah, they call it. And throughout the meal, there's multiple ceremonies within the ceremony that teach and talk about the Jewish story. And many of them point to Jesus point to the Messiah. They don't know that it's Jesus, but as believers, as Christians, we have come to understand that. One of the ceremonies involving the unleavened bread is known as the sop, and that is the dipping of the matzah, or the unleavened bread, in bitter herbs, and traditionally, this would be done as if you were the MC or the master of ceremonies at the Passover, you would hand it to the person immediately to your right, and it would be for the guest of honor. And in this case, he would have been sitting immediately to the side of Jesus. And like I said, in the Gospels, in the story of Jesus, it's called the sop. And scripture makes it very clear that during the Passover meal, during the, the celebration of the rituals and everything they were going through in Jesus, with Jesus and the disciples in the upper room, Jesus handed the sop to Judas. And the Bible says that Satan failed Judas's heart and he left. He went out. The Bible makes it equally clear that it was night, it was dark at that point, and it has been correctly said that there has been no night as dark as what was going on in the heart of Judas at that specific time. You might even say that Judas was excommunicated during the communion service. He was kicked out or asked to leave or decided to leave, some combination of all of that, during the middle of the Passover service. A little, literal, actual ceremony 
that illustrated a spiritual truth. You see? After the meal, then, there was a third round of grape juice, and it was called the Cup of Redemption. And immediately following the end of the ceremony, when it was all done, there was a fourth cup, and it was called the Cup of Praise, also called the Cup of Acceptance. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 23 and 26, Jesus, it's, it, the scripture indicates that Jesus did not drink that cup. He gave it to his disciples and he said, drink all of it. And he says, we won't celebrate, I won't celebrate this until we get to heaven. Jesus didn't drink that cup. And then they would close the service by reading Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. And it's just so amazing. I don't have the time to show you what those psalms actually are. You can look at it yourself. Psalm 115 to 118. And they closed it with singing or reciting those hymns or those, those psalms, those verses. <clears throat> I don't need to tell you and remind you. I think it's interesting how the flow of events happened here this morning with uh, the devotional and the Sunday school we're reminded that we live in a world that is very self-centered. And it's egotistical and um, competitive. Relationally, socially, we have competitions going on in our lives where people, it is sometimes even considered normal for people to promote themselves or to lift themselves up in some way. Pride is considered a virtue by some, in some ways, in certain cultures. Well, we know, we know, our, our, our experience teaches us that pride run rampant cannot exist. Pride goes before a fall, Proverbs says, and we know that when a person is preoccupied with himself, it's just a matter of time until life's going to come at him and he's going to know better, right? That's how it works. The scripture is clear on that as well. Scripture is very clear that selfism has no place in Christian theology. There is no room, there is no place for the lifting up of oneself in the kingdom of God. And when people are committed, first of all, to themselves, we use the word narcissism, relationships disintegrate. If, if you are committed to serving yourself, that's usually what happens. Friendships disintegrate. Marriages disintegrate. Families disintegrate. They fall apart. And sadly, the preoccupation with oneself has found its way into church life. And here in, in our churches of 2023, we find ourselves in that same deal where there's manifestations of selfism and, and scripture, uh, yeah, those kinds of things going on. So Jesus and his disciples got into the upper room, and they discovered that there was no servant. There was nobody there to wash feet. There was nobody there to, to do the, um, the, the, yeah, the washing. And the scripture makes it pretty clear. I think you can see it throughout all four of the Gospels. That as Jesus was there in Jerusalem, he had gone to Jerusalem for his hour the Bible says, and that's an interesting study in and of itself. I think at least four times Jesus called it his hour, 
and he was waiting for his time to die. He went to Jerusalem for that specific purpose, to die. And that whole week, what was on the minds of the disciples was who's the greatest. Social, relational competition. They were duking it out. Even, even the mom got involved. Zebedee's wife got involved. And she re- made a request that her sons, James and John, would sit on either the left or right of Jesus. I'm guessing she didn't come up with that. I'm pretty sure the disciples put her up to that. If the disciples had been giving any heed, if they had been giving any understanding, if they would have been at least even spiritually aware enough to know what was going on, they would have known that that discussion was completely unnecessary. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said to the disciples, It shall not be so among you. He's talking about competition, about who's the greatest. And he said, But whoever will be great among you, let him be your minister or your servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. You see, in the corporate world, there's this pyramid. And the further up you get in the corporate chain, the fewer people are up above you and the more people are under you. Jesus turns that triangle on its head and he says, if you want to be great, it's not how many people you're above, it's how many people you're lifting up, how many people you're supporting, how many people you're promoting. And that's the the, the model that Jesus demonstrated here in the upper room. In Luke chapter 22, it says there was a strife among them. And it's a reoccurring theme. A strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. He that is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger And he that is chief, as he that doth serve. There's indication in some of the Gospels that right during this time, just right here in the upper room, they were still arguing. In the very upper room, that very evening, at that very time. They were focused on being a sensation. And they didn't know that the greatest of sensations was right in their midst. The greatest sensation of all time becomes the servant, and he washes their feet. It's a lot like in our time if the President of the United States would be cleaning the bathrooms in the White House. That's how foreign it was to them, how unlike it was for them. If they had given mind and heart to his teaching, one of them would have washed the feet or they would have figured out some way to mutually share the task. And it could have been a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing, but it seems like it never occurred to them. And I think what Jesus did is actually a small picture. What he did in washing their feet is a small picture of what he did on the cross. In verse 1 of chapter 13, John chapter 13 It says that he loved his own, which were in the world. He loved them to the end, and that means that he loves them to the full extent. He loved them the the most possible, the strongest way that they could be loved. He loved them to perfection. He loved them to the uttermost. He loves them to the full extent. 
And I think that one of the greatest lessons of this whole account is that only absolute humility can generate absolute love. It is the nature of love to be selfless. It is the nature of love to be giving. It is the nature of love to promote others. And the opposite is true as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, love does not seek its own. In fact, I think to condense all of the truths of 1 Corinthians 13 in one statement, it would be that the greatest way to express love is to express selflessness or humility would be another word. In John chapter 13, as we have in many places in the Bible, lots of places in the Bible, we have the example of Jesus contrasted with the example of Judas. And that's, like I said, that's repeated in a lot of places in Scripture. And the contrast is striking. And I think it's probably one of the, maybe the main reason that we have this passage is the contrast the attitude of Judas with the attitude of Jesus. I think we can better understand the magnitude of what Jesus did when we look at what Judas did. Where Judas was driven by hatred, by jealousy, by rejection of Jesus' truth, by rejection of the plan of God, by absolute caring about himself to the fullest extent, He was willing to sacrifice and to betray his only friend, his greatest and, yeah, his group of friends for the purpose of a little bit of money. And Jesus, on the other hand, is the extreme opposite. I'm going to read a reading that I came across written by Max Lucado where he talks about this scene. And Max has a way of writing it in ways that, um, yeah, I'm just going to give it the way that he gave it. It has been a long day. Jerusalem is packed with Passover guests, most of whom clamor for a glimpse of the teacher. The spring sun is warm. The streets are dry. The disciples are a long way from home. A splash of cool water would be refreshing. The disciples enter the room one by one and take their place around the table. On the wall hangs a towel, and on the floor sits a pitcher and a basin. Any one of the disciples could volunteer for the job but no one does. After a few moments, Jesus stands and removes his outer garment. He wraps a servant's girdle around his waist, takes up the basin, kneels before one of the disciples. He unlaces the sandal and gently lifts the foot and places it in the basin, covers it with water and begins to bathe it. One by one, one grimy foot after another, Jesus works his way down the row. In Jesus' day, the washing of feet was a task reserved not just for the servants, but the lowest of servants. The servant at the bottom of the totem pole was expected to be the one on his knees with the towel and basin. In this case, the one with the towel and basin is the king of the universe. Hands that shape the stars now wash away filth. Fingers that formed mountains now massage toes. And the one before whom all nations will one day kneel now kneels before his disciples. Hours before his own death, Jesus' concern is singular. 
He wants his disciples to know how much he loves them. You can be sure Jesus knows the future of those feet that he's washing. These 24 toes, these 24 feet will not spend the next day following their master, defending his cause. These feet will dash for cover at the flash of a Roman sword. Only one pair of feet wouldn't abandon him completely in the garden. One disciple wouldn't desert him at Gethsemane. Judas wouldn't even make it that far. He will abandon Jesus that very night at that very table. What a passionate moment when Jesus silently lifts the feet of his betrayer and washes them in the basin. I think there's just so much we can learn from this incident. And there's too many people in our churches that are standing on their own perceived, perceived dignity. There's too many of us that are wrapped up on this social competition, promoting our causes, concerned about whether or not we're the ones that are recognized, concerned about whether we're the ones that receive the accolades. And so consequently... According to to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, self-centeredness comes into the picture. And 1 Corinthians 13 makes it clear that it's a waste. And then Jesus moves to Peter. He comes to Peter. And Peter is sort of the thinker in their group, and he is also very free with his, what he's thinking about. And we see that over and over in the passage, or in the story of the Gospels. He comes to Peter, and Peter is just completely floored with what's happening. And he says, Jesus, there's no no way. He asks a rhetorical question. He says, dost thou wash my feet in verse 6? And I'm guessing he probably pulled his feet back under the table or maybe under himself if they were kneeling. And Jesus replies to Peter. He says, what I'm doing, you're not going to comprehend or realize now. But you're going to understand it later. You will realize it hereafter in verse 7. At this point, Peter was still thinking that the kingdom had come and Jesus was going to set up a kingdom and he would be one of his princes. How, would he, how could he ever allow? The Jewish mindset had no, no comprehension of a suffering Messiah, no place for it. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And so Peter, in typical fashion, goes from one extreme to the other. And he says, well, if that's the case, then wash all of me. Dump the whole basin on me. And Jesus' words are, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He says, if you're washed, if your feet are clean, all of you is clean. And there's spiritual meaning there, of course. He's saying, he's moving from the physical illustration, 
the example of splashing water on their feet, to spiritual cleansing. And throughout John's gospel, when he dealt with people, Jesus dealt with spiritual truth in physical terms. It's a common theme through the entire book of John. He did it when he spoke to Nicodemus. He did it when he talked to the woman at the well. He did it when he talked to the Pharisees and the disciples, and now he's doing it with Peter. He says, Peter, unless you allow me, unless you allow me to wash you in a spiritual way, if you don't receive spiritual cleansing, you're not clean. You have no part with me. And all cleansing, we could say, in the spiritual realm comes from Christ. And the only way anyone can be clean is if he is washed by regeneration. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. None of us, no one, nobody in the world has a relationship with Jesus Christ unless Christ has cleansed his sins. And you enter into the presence of Jesus Christ by yielding yourself to that cleansing. Peter learned that truth. In Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name among, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In 1 Peter, he uses this same illustration where he talks about the chief cornerstone and in various places throughout the books of First and Second Peter, he talks about this spiritual cleansing that Jesus illustrated by doing it in a physical sort of way. In First John chapter one verse nine, the spiritual washing of feet is called cleansing. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Or, quite literally, the word is to wash us to keep on cleansing us from unrighteousness. The confrontation between Jesus and Judas here is just so astonishing to me. Jesus knew which of the disciples, and that's a word that's repeated at least four times, five times in this passage, the word know or knew, Jesus was completely aware of what was going on. And he was completely aware of what was going on in their minds and hearts. And he rose from supper, it says. It's, a, it's an outward action. It's, it's a deliberate choice that Jesus made. And it illustrates to us, I think, how we should do. The intentionality that goes with it of serving one another. We do it by choice. We do it not because the other person deserves it but we do it because it's the right thing to do. Judas had to know what Jesus was talking about. He had to know. He had just, in the last 24 hours, made a pact with the, with the Pharisees to betray Jesus. And what was going on in the mind of Judas, we'll probably never know. As Jesus knelt and he washed his feet, it had no deterring effect on Judas at all. And it shows, again, I think the illustration or the possibility that we can go through these, these and not learn the spiritual truth at all. Judas didn't. I want you to notice what happens after Jesus finishes washing their feet. Let's look at verses 12 to 15. So after 
he had washed their feet, and he had taken his garments and was set down again. He said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. So what he's talking about here is not only the physical aspect of splashing water on another person's feet, but it's the principles, the principles that he taught them, the illustration, the visuals that he was giving them. That's what he wants us to repeat. As Christians, that's what we're called to do, to wash other people's feet. Not only the people that wash ours back, but the people who are least deserving of it. None of these disciples deserved what Jesus was doing for them. He argues from the greater to the lesser. If the Lord of glory, if I then, your Lord and Master, am willing to wash your feet, he's arguing from the greatest to the, the, the lesser. If I'm willing, he says, to gird myself with a towel, if I'm willing to take off my rabbi clothes and become like a servant. There was something about Jesus' clothing that distinguished him as a rabbi. And there was something about him taking off his clothing and separating himself from his reputation. And in Jewish mindset, the disciples were expected to follow their rabbi. Something that we can learn. Some time ago, I came across an article. It's in written in the early part of uh, probably around 19, uh, the early part of the yeah, 1900s, around 1940 or 1950 maybe, but it was in the Gospel Herald in 1969. And I just, uh, again, I, I think sometimes some of these articles can just do something in a way that I, my words can't. And it's, the article is almost entirely here. I'm going to read it. And I think of it every time that I am involved in foot washing. Here it is, the rich experience. The most impressive act I ever witnessed in the fellowship of the believers happened at the Prairie Street Mennonite Church when I was a teenage boy. That was over 35 years ago. That was in 1969, or 35 years prior to that. And yet the experience is as fresh in my mind as it were happening this moment in this very room. It involved two people. One now deceased, the other living today far away from this city of Elkhart, Indiana, where the original memorable experience took place. In another sense, however, it involved all of us in the church that day. It was hidden from none. It was open to all. What I saw has outlived any sermon I ever heard. I was sitting near the back of the church when the tall man came down the aisle he stopped several benches ahead of me, signaled to the, a particular man, leaned over, and whispered a few words. I was close, but I could not hear the words that he spoke, and yet I knew what he said. The expression of his face was one of great tenderness and love. I thought he was about to cry. Later, he did cry. Knowing what was taking place in that church, in that particular service, I did not have to hear the words that he actually spoke. I could read his slightly moving lips, and I knew why he was there. 
and my boyish heart was strangely stirred. Thirty-five years have passed, and I had never observed a more significant or more meaningful event in any church service that I ever attended, and I've attended quite a lot of, of, the, of services. When I was a boy, kind brothers in the church arranged for me to work on Saturdays and after school at a local store that employed only Mennonites at that time. I had not been at that place of employment very long before I realized that two of the brethren did not get along. They had periodic misunderstandings, voices would be raised, and anger was present. As a new Christian, I could not understand those differences. The harsh words. I was puzzled, disturbed, and hurt. And that Sunday, at the Prairie Street Mennonite Church, some four peas ahead of me, the two men faced one another. The words the tall man said to the older brother in the church bench, The words that I could not read, that I could not hear, but I could lip-read, were the whispered words, May I wash your feet. I still feel tender as I recall the event. As I write, my eyes are wet. I am unashamed of my emotions. It was a moving, meaningful scene. I watched those two brothers walk to the front of the church. The tall one took a towel from the bench and gently motioned the other to be seated. Both of them were barefoot. The tall one knelt down, took the towel, and tenderly washed his brother's feet. Then they exchanged places, and the act was repeated. They both arose, the towel was laid aside, and they stood facing one another in the front of that church. The clock stood still. It seemed as if time was frozen for a microsecond. It was like a beautiful painting. Their faces glistened with tears, Then there was action once more, gentle, gentle action. Their cheeks touched as they entered into one another's arms and embraced. Then it was over. But in another way, it was never over. By that brief act of washing another's feet, they dissolved all the puzzlement, disturbance, and hurt that swirled within a young boy's heart. It was a symbol for all to see, and he wanted us all to know. He publicly admitted his part in the misunderstanding. He sought his brother's forgiveness, the forgiveness of the church and the forgiveness of God. It was such a good thing that he did, far more noble than some things I've seen done in the church. Some people tend to think, I believe, that the nearer we get to God, the further we are from other people. And I'm going to tell you just in the strongest terms I can, that's not true. That's not how it is. And I think the act of Foot washing symbolizes and shows us that. It teaches us that. The act of kneeling before another brother. The act of washing another brother's foot literally symbolizes and should teach us the act of humility. In terms of sacrificing, in this text here, Proximity to God is to serve someone else. And Jesus shows us that. And in John chapter 13, verse 17, he says, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. 
And it does not say happy are you if you know them. It does not say happy if you, you are if you teach them. It says happy are you if you do them. That means that we are to live these principles. We're to repeat the principle that Jesus did. If you're able, I invite you to kneel as we pray.